0: All right, you guys, if you guys have your your Bible, please open up to the sixth chapter of Judges. Let's get going, my friends. Sixth chapter of Judges tonight. I hope that you guys all had a good Thanksgiving, but I'm glad to be back in the Word together. We're picking back up in our series on the gospel, on the good news according to Judges. And if you remember, we have been looking at the account of the deliverer for this section, a man who is named Gideon. And tonight we're looking at the section of his story that is possibly the most famous of his story. Certainly, it's the most famous story that's taught to children, at least, to young children. If you had a children's Sunday school class or you did some sort of children material, you might have heard about this story with Gideon. This is the story of Gideon and his fleece. Is that an account that you guys are all aware of? The fleece and Gideon? Does anybody want to tell them what happens with Gideon in the fleece? He asked for two signs about it. That's right. He asked for two signs about it. So that's, that's what we're going to be looking at tonight, tonight. And this account is actually much more than God's, it's about much more than God's ability to perform a miracle. In it, we see God's willingness to deliver his people in this account. We see an example of a heavenly father's love for his children. We see an honest account of the ability of men. And it's all in the context of putting the Lord to a test. So what do we make of that? Because there's other things that we should be familiar with about about that concept. So what happens with with this fleece? Lots to cover tonight. So let's read our text and then we'll pray after we read and ask the Lord to bless our time as we study his word. So, the reading of the word of the Lord, beginning at verse 36 in chapter 6. Then Gideon said to God, If you will save Israel by my hand, as you have said, behold, I am laying a fleece of wool on the threshing floor. If there is dew on the fleece alone, and it is dry on all the ground, then I shall know that you will save Israel by my hand, as you have said. And it was so. When he rose early the next morning and squeezed the fleece, he wrung enough dew from the fleece to fill a bowl with water. Then Gideon said to God, Let not your anger burn against me. Let me speak just once more. Please let me just test once more with the fleece. Please let it be dry on the fleece only, and on all the ground let there be dew. And God did so that night, and it was dry on the fleece only, and on all the ground there was dew. So That ends the reading of God's holy and sufficient and inspired word. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word and for this revelation of what you are like, and we pray that you would help us to understand tonight, that you, Holy Spirit, would guide our thoughts to be pleasing to you, help us to be free of distraction, help us to understand the truth as it is, how you revealed it, and let uh, Christ be glorified tonight. In his name we pray. Amen. Okay, so... I think really, if we want to understand the significance of what's happening here in this account of the fleece, we really need to remember the passage that came before it. And we were in there two weeks ago, but it really sets the whole thing in a new light, I think. And if you remember, this isn't the Gideon of the beginning of chapter 6. Uh, the Gideon who couldn't, didn't recognize the angel of the Lord, who was right before him. This isn't, you know, the angel of the Lord, the, the pre-incarnate Christ this isn't the Gideon who was confused about Baal and Asherah, who was worshiping these false gods. If you remember what we read two weeks ago, before the holiday, remember what happened with the Spirit in Gideon. It was probably maybe a year or so, maybe past, between the time that Gideon tore down the idols, and then Israel's enemies started to amass against them. And at that point, verse 34, we read that the Spirit clothes Gideon the Spirit of the Lord comes upon Gideon for him to be able to accomplish a task. Just like the Spirit would come upon King Saul for a task, just like the Spirit comes upon other judges, just like the Spirit would come upon people in Israel to build the tabernacle or the temple, just like the Spirit came upon people in the New Testament to perform miracles and signs and the revealing of the covenant of grace in the new covenant. And this work of the Spirit is Confirmed by the nation of Israel, we read last week, as they all come to Gideon's call to battle. Remember, Gideon sounded the trumpet and all these people amass. And then, seemingly, out of nowhere, that's where it stopped, we have this text. This test from Gideon, this moment of doubt before it's all about to go down. You could almost imagine the scene, right? Tens of thousands of people have arrived to go out to battle against the Amalekites and the Midianites. We'll read about the amount of people in the next chapter, actually. And they're preparing to march out and get in, most likely in private. There's nothing in our text to make us think that this was a public ordeal. He prays to the Lord because he's got it in his own head. You know, you know what that's like, don't you? When, you? when you get in your own head and you start having doubts about whatever situation it is that you're in. You think you can't do something. You're unsure of an outcome. People nowadays, they have like anxiety attacks over that type of thing. I feel like anxiety attacks are like a common thing for people now. I don't know why necessarily. Maybe it's just the, the craziness of our society. But Gideon does something much better than just staying in his own mind and having a panic attack or having an anxiety attack before going out to battle. He, simply, he doesn't simply turn inwards and stay in his own head. He goes to his God. Now, the specifics of what Gideon does in going to his God, that's worth looking at in detail and taking into consideration for ourselves in our own course of action. But as a general principle, as something we see on the surface right away in our passage, Gideon goes to God. We read, Gideon said to God. That's instructive for us too, you guys. Uh, The Christian, rather than being stressed out and overwhelmed, rather than being... Stuck in fear and in terror, no matter what situation we might find ourselves in, the Christian has an advantage over people who aren't Christian, because we can go to God at that time. We have a God who listens, and more on that later, on how God listens. We have a God who desires for us to come to Him. Uh, He desires for us to come to Him for salvation. First off, Matthew 11, 28, you're probably familiar with this passage. there jesus says come to me all who labor and are heavy laden and i will give you rest take my yoke upon you and learn from me for i am gentle and lowly in heart and you will find rest for your souls for my yoke is easy and my burden is light so at this point jesus is teaching about salvation he's 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 talking to his disciples and the crowd that's amassed and he's telling them about about who God is, and to, to know their, their need for reconciliation with God because of God's sovereign choice of them to, to do so. And so he tells those that hear. he tells those who have a desire to love God, a desire that God creates in us himself, he tells them, come to me if you want rest. And the context here, again, is for salvation. It most certainly is for salvation. It's for, the, for being saved the first time. But we also need to understand that we're not only and simply saved positionally as an event that happens once in time. I mean, it's true that there is a beginning like that. There's a time when a person is not saved, and then there's a time when that person becomes saved. But we're also kept by God, too. You know, Nothing can snatch us out of his hand, John 10. He saved us. He is saving us, and He saves us until the end. And just like it is true that He is in the process of saving us until we reach that glorified state, we continually need to go to Him for rest. His burden is light. We are privileged to repeatedly do that over and over as we walk this course on this earth. No matter what trial it is that is before us, no matter whatever, whatever burden is on us, we are privileged to be able to go to him. He beckons us to himself right, to take up his yoke upon him for his burden is light. No matter what is going on in your life, so don't get in your head, Christian, and stay there where the flesh and the devil can do their work. You know, go to God. He says it like this to the saints in Philippi, in Philippians 4, 6 and to 7. He says, Do not be anxious about, any, about anything But in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your heart and mind in Christ Jesus. That's that's the privilege you have as being a Christian. We can go to God when things are too great for us to handle, and we know that He listens, and we know that He wants us to come to Him. He tells us there in those two passages and and many, many others. It's one of many privileges. But that's just the surface of this. Let's consider what Gideon does. So, verse 36, Gideon says to God, He says, If you will save Israel by my hand, as you have said. So, there's some doubt there, right? There's some doubt on Gideon's behalf. His faith in God's promise is wavering a little bit. And that simply means that Gideon is like us. Granted, this is why we need to remember the passage from two weeks ago. The spirit has come upon Gideon to complete a task. But it's clear that when that happens, it's not like the spirit coming upon him for that like just erased his humanity. It's not like it made him this mighty, larger-than-life individual who was without the ability to stumble and doubt. After all, uh, the first king of Israel, Saul, he sinned so greatly and the Spirit was on him to complete a task in that moment as well too. His sin was so great that the Spirit actually leaves him and it was you know akin to him losing his blessing even. So people, when the, when the Spirit comes upon them to accomplish a task, it's not as if it erases their humanity. And the same is true when the Holy Spirit comes to a person in salvation, isn't it? When you're saved the Spirit of God indwells you. It unites you to God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit, the, the Godhead, and it unites you to other believers as well, and, it'll, and He promises to never leave you. But you still have to deal with your human nature that is prone to sin, don't you? And none of us are perfect or without flaw. Even when we become saved, we still sin. We still commit grievous errors and offenses towards God. We still sin greatly. We still need to be reminded of the gospel every day, but God keeps us through these things so that um, we have the ability and we are prone often to not fully believe, which is really what is happening here with Gideon as well. But notice, Gideon's not in a place of total unbelief. It's, if you will, and then, you know, save Israel by my hand, as you have said. So he's He's calling into question what he he kind of already knows. He says, if you will do this, he knows God has said it. And so there's a measure of belief there. He acknowledged that God has promised to do something to deliver Israel by his hand, but there's some doubt mingled with it. I'm reminded of the prayer of the father who had a son that was demon-possessed. It was an exceptionally bad possession. If you remember this, this is Mark chapter 9. This kid... It was possessed by a demon, and this demon prevented him from even being able to speak. Demon possession happens still today. It's it's much more rare, I think, than it did in the time when Jesus was walking the earth. There's reasons why people think that a common one that seems believable to me. I mean, there's not a specific reason given in in the word for it, but it's because Jesus was on the earth at that time, and part of the thing that he was going to do so that the people would know that he was the promised Messiah was to cast demons out of people. But certainly, demons are still working um, today. But anyways, in Mark chapter 9, this kid had a a bad possession. There's levels, different levels of uh, possession. It could be, you know, not as bad in some as it is in others, and it was bad for this kid, it would cause him to throw himself on the ground and have what amounts like seizures. What we would think from a medical perspective was a seizure. He would become all rigid and shake and foam at the mouth. And it would happen also uh, when the boy was near a fire or water often, is what the Bible says, attempting to kill him. Go ahead. He would fall into the fire or fall like when there's a body of water. He would fall into the water and you know, convulse. And you know if somebody wasn't there to pull him out, it would end up killing him or he had burn. So this wasn't a medical problem, though, like a seizure is today. It was a spiritual problem. And the disciples of Jesus couldn't cast it out. And so the father is desperate. You can imagine, I would think. So the father asked Jesus to have pity on him. And if he is able to do, he says to Jesus, if you're able to do something, anything at all, please do it, essentially paraphrased. And so the Lord Jesus takes this as an opportunity to teach him and he calls him on the, if you can part of his request. Uh, this is Jesus who we're talking about here. He is the God-man. He is God in the flesh. He did miracles like the the ones he was going to do to this young boy to testify to the reality that he was the promised Messiah. And he tells the dad in Mark 9 23, he says, everything is possible to him who believes, or everything is possible for one who believes. And that's not some like carte blanche promise to do anything uh, you want, but it's a promise that God's will will be done And our prayers will be answered in the positive when we are praying God's will. But you can imagine how this father feels, right? His son is going to die at a young age, most certainly because of the possession it would seem. And Jesus tells him, well, if you believe it's possible. The pressure that the dad must have felt. Right? I mean, I'm a dad. That was the interaction that I was having with Jesus. Like, talk about a moment of... Of doubt. And Jesus isn't some name-it-and-claim-it preacher. He's a wise and tender shepherd, and he helped this father realize his need through this statement. The same need we all have as believers. And so the father cries out at this point. He says, I believe. Help me with my unbelief. I believe. Help me where my belief falls short. This is the sort of thing that's happening with Gideon here. He believes, but he needs help with his belief. Moses was the same way. Remember, his brother Aaron needed to accompany him to go before Pharaoh. Abraham was the same way. He wanted to know that God would do the promise that he said, the promise to bless him and to make a great nation to him. And so Abraham asked him about it, and God uh, ratified the covenant with the sacrifice. It's that story in Genesis 15 where God formally enters into the covenant with Abraham by having those animals uh, be sacrificed a split in part and then God passes between them as a way to encourage and reassure Abraham. So Gideon doesn't deserve a bad rap here for his doubt. Excuse me, he's human. He needs a savior. A weak faith is often used by God. And that's an encouragement to us. Our hope isn't in us. Our our hope is in Christ. And Gideon doubted his course all the way up to the very edge of battle, all the way up to the very edge of the thing he was required to do. How very like us. And the real potential for a problem, though, in Gideon, in this account, comes in what he asks. But I think also that this might not be what it seems on the surface. So let's take a look at Gideon's request. Uh, At 37, this this is the test he gives. He says, "Behold, I am laying a fleece of wool on the threshing floor. If there is dew on the fleece alone, and it is dry on all the ground, then I shall know that you will save Israel by my hand, as you have said." And it was so. When he rose early the next morning and squeezed the fleece, he wrung enough dew from the fleece to fill a bowl with water. So, a fleece of wool—we all know what that is, I think. I hope it's a piece of fabric, essentially. Okay, a piece of fabric made from sheepskin. And a threshing floor is probably something that we don't really know a lot about. A threshing floor is a place where grain would be harvested. And so it would be this flat surface, it'd be um, very hard, maybe even cement, but very, if not cement, like tampered down. So not very porous, it'd be, it'd be a smooth surface. And sometimes they will, even um, they would bring in an animal inside the threshing floor so that it would stomp on the, on the grain and break apart the, the useful part from the waste. So the test is pretty clear, I think, and it's clear that's a test as well because the following verses note that these are these are tests. But Gideon tells God that he will know that God will deliver him if the morning dew is on the fleece alone and the threshing floor is dry. Remember, this is not a the threshing floor is not like grass or something like that or dirt. It's not a porous surface. Dew would remain on it for quite a while. So will God perform the sign to encourage and reassure Gideon? Well, the answer, of course, is yes. And he did it actually abundantly. He did it over the top. The fleece isn't just a little wet. There's enough to pick it up and to wring it and to fill a bowl of, of water. So there's enough water in the fleece to fill up a bowl and the ground around it was all dry. So clearly, God is saying to Gideon, you know, that he's saying, you can trust me. This is my plan. But before we get to the next part of the fleece test, we need to consider the validity of Gideon's method. And we should just put it plainly for the sake of time, actually. You know, should we put God to the test? The answer is no. We should not put God to the test. We, as God's creation, don't get to stand over God as his judge and demand he prove himself to us. I know this personally. I think I've shared this before. When I was a, a, young, a young kid, I was probably about 11 years old, 12 years old, and I was praying. I, I grew up in a religious family. My, my family was Roman Catholic, and I was praying for something to stop happening. And I kept praying, God, make this stop happening. It was a good thing for this thing to stop happen, happening, and it kept happening. And so I just didn't believe in God anymore because I was like, okay, I'm praying and and praying for the thing to stop happening and it didn't happen or it continued to happen. And so God must not be real. And that started me down my path towards atheism and a whole lot of sin. But the scripture themselves are plain in this regard as well too. Jesus answered Satan during the temptation. He said, it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. It's very plain. And in saying that, he was quoting Deuteronomy 6, in which God warns them about the judgment that came upon them for their sin and their rebellion against God. And yet, here we have Gideon asking God for a test. But is this the same sort of test that people often put before God, where God has to prove himself as if the person is greater than God? Like in my case, in my, you know, why don't you answer my prayers test? Or in the sense of a direct rejection of his law? It's not. This isn't that same sort of a thing. We must never put God to the test by banking on his mercy while sinning or, ignore, or ignoring his holiness while sinning. We must never put God to the test so as to assert ourselves as greater than him. But what seems to be happening here with Gideon is a humble plea to know God more. You see his humility in the next text, actually the next few verses. And we'll read that in just a second. But we need to understand that Gideon didn't have the same blessings that we do here. We in this room, people living since Jesus's, well, since the canon of the New Testament was completed, at least, essentially, and since Jesus was on the earth. We have what's called the means of grace. We have the preaching of the Word of God. We have baptism. We have the Lord's Supper. We have you know, fellowship with the saints. We have prayer to the Father in the name of the Son by the power of the Spirit. Gideon didn't have such things in which he would be able to partake of and grow in the Lord. He had, if you remember, he had people around him who worshipped false gods. Uh, gods based on the forces of nature. right? The Midianites and the Amalekites, the people that, they, that kept coming into Israel and causing them to flee into the mountains, the people that they're about to go to battle with. They worshipped false gods that were based on the forces of nature. So here you have Gideon asking Yahweh, the one true God, for a sign over the forces of nature. You know, can you make the water be here and not there? He has belief. He just needs help with his unbelief. And you know what? I mean, the first test was too easy. Uh, So he has a plan for another one. So let's continue to read 39 to 40. Then Gideon said to God, Let not your anger burn against me. Let me speak just once more. Please let me test just once more with the fleece. Please let it be dry on the fleece only and on all the ground that there be dew. And God did so that night and it was dry on the fleece only and on all the ground there was dew. So you see the humility of Gideon here, don't you? Uh, Let not your anger burn against me. Let me... Let me speak just once more. Please let me test. Please let it be dry. You see, he's trying to to know God better. Can God really do this and defeat the Midianites? God's going to show him how easy it is for him in the next chapter, actually. But notice this test. And this is actually a better test for the strength of God. Have you ever um, set like a napkin before on a mess on the counter and just watched what happened? Like you set it on it and the water starts pulling into it, the liquid starts pulling into it, and it pulls it from wherever it is onto the napkin. Yeah. Well, that is essentially could have been what happened with the first test. The wool is drier than the, and, and more absorbent than the ground around it, and so it could have just been that, that it pulled the water up. But this second miracle is much greater than the first one. The second test, there's no way for this to be a naturally occurring thing. The, fleets, the fleece needs to be dry and all the ground needs to be wet. Even under the fleece, there needs to be dew. Uh, the fleece that we know holds water. In verse 40, God did so that night. He did what Gideon had asked of that test. So friends, this is the, this is the fatherly love of God. Look how patient he is with Gideon here. He had already promised deliverance through Gideon. He gave him the spirit to accomplish the task, and Gideon, through his doubt, right up to the point of the big day of going out to battle, God is still patient with him. He's not ashamed to reassure Gideon in light of his fears, and he's not ashamed to do it for you. He's not ashamed to do it for me. He's not ashamed to do it for anyone who is his child today. There's no hint of anger towards God or from God towards Gideon here, is there? Not at all. Psalm 103, 13 to 14. Because as, the father, as a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. For he knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. God knows what it's, what it's like for us to be the way that we are. The fears, the doubts that we have. He knows that our belief isn't perfect. It's Christ who is perfect. And that's why we need him. That's why we depend upon His righteous life to be our standard of righteousness in our place and His death in our place on the cross as the punishment for our sins. So if you want to know God more, you should know that it isn't something that annoys Him. It's not something that's going to make Him angry. And we have something much better than a fleece on hard ground by which to know Him— Hebrews 1.1 says long ago at many times and in many ways God spoke to our fathers through the prophets. But in these last days he has spoken to us by his Son whom he appointed the heir of all things through whom also he created the world. Do we want to know what God is like? Then we look to Christ. He is the image of God. He He has the fullness of the Godhead bodily dwells in him. And remember what Christ bids us to do. You know, if you hear his voice, he says, come. He come and he will give you rest. And may we have grace to do so. Let's pray. Holy God, we thank you that you are the way that you are, that you are merciful towards your children, that we can come to you with our doubts and our insecurities and know that you'll be patient with us, not because of something in us, but because of how you are, because of your great love. So, we pray that you would give to us a desire to know you more and that you would help us to have understanding that we might honor you with our lives for you are worthy of all praise and glory. And we pray this all in Jesus' name, amen.